Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. couple things uh, this morning as, as we kind of get into our, our passage. Um, November 18th coming up in a, in a number of weeks here. Um, that is our, our commitment Sunday. And so if you've you know, been around here for a while, um, obviously it's going to look a little different this year. Uh, but commitment Sunday is that, is that Sunday where we come together and we kind of offer ourselves to God, not just our, our activities and, and, and the way our, our thoughts and our minds and that, but we, we offer Him and we worship Him with our finances. And, and uh, so you'll be getting more information about that in, in coming weeks, but I just wanted to let you know that um, that, that's still happening and, and, and uh, we, we will uh, be here in person and, and many of you will be online um, and that will be in a digital format this year, but we're still going to come together and we're still going to be uh, worshiping God this way because, because that's, that's very much um, the kind of people we are. Um, before I open up uh, the word this morning, I, I, I believe that it's, it's wrong to preach um, when maybe there is some hidden sin. So I have to confess something this morning. Um, and I don't know how this is going to go, but last night when I came to, to kind of walk campus and pray, um, I rode my motorcycle in, and, 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 I, and I, um, just for uh, security reasons, I, I usually come around, I come in this way, and I go through the, 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 the sliding doors in the, in the pavilion entrance, and I put my bike in there, and then um, I leave that way, because it's kind of exciting, because I just ride my bike up to the doors, and they open automatically, and I feel like I'm important. But I look to my right, and if, if, you, if you, I don't know if you came in that way, uh, to the right, there's some cones at the end of that, that, that kind of uh, walkway over there, and then there was a, a yellow caution tape across, across the walkway, and I looked over there, and I was like, you know what, that looks like a finish line to me. And I was like, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure someone put that there, and, and they, you know, they, they blocked that off, but I was like, I, I have, and so I, I revved my, I'm by myself, by the way. So I, you know, revved my engine and I, and I just, I went for it and I went through the tape and I, and I was standing up as I went through the tape and, and then I just drove off. And I, I felt like, I felt like maybe there was something that was, I don't know, I just feel like I have to confess that to get that off my chest so that everything's clear. But um, I won last night. I just want to say that I, I won and I, and I felt good about myself because I won. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've never gone through tape like that before, but it was awesome. It was just, I see why people like to finish that way. Um, and I see the motivation to be the, the winner in things. Um, this morning, uh, we are in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's open up to, to Mark chapter 2, 13. Um, last week, uh, Kyle talked about really... Um, kind of the real Jesus versus my Jesus. And one of the things he, says, he said last week was, when my Jesus and the real Jesus come into conflict, which one is going to change? And I think that's such a, that's such a significant statement and that's such a significant thing for us in a struggle because, because we really, we really are, are difficult people in that we really get, get, get kind of entrenched in the things that we either enjoy or the things that we value. And really, our whole lives are, if we, are, if we have surrendered to Jesus, our whole lives are a, a, significant, 
a significant transition to become like Jesus. And, and, and so there's a lot of ways that, that my personality and my desires and, and my values and my agenda gets kind of, kind of infiltrates into how I see Jesus and, and what I want Jesus to be rather than who Jesus actually is. And, and people tend to see Jesus as, as, as one or the other oftentimes. They kind of fall on one side or the other. They kind of see Jesus as kind of, kind of weak and mild and tolerant of others and avoided controversy. And then, then there's those who kind of see Jesus as this radical revolutionist, defender of what's important to me. And, and while Jesus isn't solely one of these things, he did deeply upset the status quo without ever being violent or acting out of desperation. Remember that as we, as we look at the life of Christ, Jesus never went to a place of being violent or acted out of desperation. Like a point of saying, man, I just can't take this. I'm just going to do this. That's not what he did. And he was very measured and he always kept his mission in front of him. And it wasn't just the, the, the goal of his mission of, of really paying for our sins, but along the way, he kept a certain set of values and character along the way, no matter what he ran into. And you see, the real Jesus lived according to his mission in a way that was both humble and unapologetic, regardless of who was watching or what they might demand from him. And so today we get to look at that real Jesus again as, as, as he begins to run into some issues and, and there's kind of an escalation between him and those who had a form of morality, a form of righteousness, but, but denied its power. And so, and so we, we come into to, to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and, and, and here's, here's what, what we see. Here's where we catch up with Jesus. It says, he, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is the first part of our passage this morning. And here's the setting. Here's the setting. Jesus is, is again, he, he's always on the go and, and he's walking down by the sea and he comes by this, this guy who is a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector. And, and again, the way that was set up was that, was that they were collecting taxes from the Jewish people on behalf of Rome and Rome had a certain amount that everyone had to pay. And, and so these Jewish tax collectors were really working for Rome and they were collecting taxes and they really had the the, uh, the flexibility to uh, overtax for their own benefit. And so that's kind of the, the context of what we're looking at. And they were seen very much as traitors to Israel. And so Jews who were tax collectors were not, were not well thought of uh, by the more moral people in, in, in Jerusalem and in Israel. 
And so Jesus goes by and he calls this tax collector, Levi, also known as Matthew. And, and then what happens is, is not only does Jesus call him to follow him, but then, but then what he does is, is he, takes, he takes, he lets all of his friends know that, that he's going to be following Jesus and he invites all of them over to this, this meal, this party at his house. And, and so it's kind of this maybe a going away party and a, and a meal. And so then there's this conflict because, because the, the Pharisees are, are watching what Jesus does. And so they ask this question in this context. They say, why does Jesus, they ask his disciples, his other disciples, says, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Inferring that they don't do those kinds of things and they have a much higher standard of righteousness than Jesus, because here Jesus is, is actually eating and, and reclining and hanging out with, with tax collectors and sinners before they repent of their sins. Because for the Pharisees, they said, look, you need, you need to be repentant, you need to be, you, and you need to follow all of these things before we're going to give you the time of day. Yet Jesus is there, and, he, and he's sitting, and he's eating with these people. And so, so they ask the question to Jesus' disciples. They say, so, so why, how, why is it that Jesus does this? And, and, it, and it's not just a, as an innocent question. It's, it's actually more of a statement. It's a signal letting people know we don't do this kind of thing, but Jesus does. And so Jesus responds to them because he, he knows what's in their heart. He knows what they're asking. And Jesus says to them, those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's essentially, if I were to put Jesus' words into maybe words that, that would kind of make, make a lot of sense today, is this, that Jesus basically says to the, the Pharisees, he says, you know what? You're right. These are sick, hurting, troubled people. Their lifestyle has damaged them deeply. They don't see life rightly. And they are covering up many evils. They are false in many ways. And you are right that these are sick men and women. But where else would a doctor be? I've come to heal, so, so where there is hurting, that's where you will find me. And it's so interesting because as Jesus responds to, to the Pharisees' question, he basically says, look, you're right. You, you, you know, you're, you're wrong about a lot of things, but you're right that these people are in predicaments because of their sin. And they are sinful, and they think wrong, and they, they, they believe false things, and they do false things. And, and there's all of these things that he recognizes, but he says, and, 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 and the reality is that I have a message of healing and wholeness, and so where would I go other than to, the, to those who recognize that they need salvation or that they need help or they need something. And there's two things that I think we see in what Jesus says here and how he responds. There's, there's two things that I think we need to kind of take note of. And the first one is this. When people think they have no need of help from God, they are in no position to be helped. When people believe that they are, they are in a place where they have no need of help from God, they are in no position to be helped. Have, have you ever tried to, to offer help to somebody in, in any way where they don't think that they need help? How well does that go? 
Like that goes poorly every time, doesn't it? <laughs> when you offer someone and you say, hey, can I help you with that? And they say, no, no, I've, I'm, I'm good with this. And then you try to help. And, and it looks like there's a fight breaking out at that point because you're trying to help someone who doesn't want help. And so when someone doesn't recognize their need, then they're in a position that they cannot be helped. And so what Jesus is kind of saying is he, he responds to the, the Pharisees. He says, look, if you don't recognize that you have a need for God, then, then you're not in a position where you're going to be willing to receive help. The second thing that we see in this as Jesus responds to what the Pharisees said is, is this, that people are more important than prejudice. People are more important than prejudice. And, and here's the reality of, of human beings, of us, we are all have bias and prejudice that we will continue to struggle with until we meet Jesus face to face. And I don't know if, if, if I were to say to you that, you know what, I, I don't have any prejudice against any kind of person, that wouldn't entirely be true. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily want to admit that, but there's a reality that there are times when I encounter different people and I will internally and sometimes even externally react or respond in different ways. That's part of our sin nature. That's part of the problem with sin is that sin, sin drives us to a place where we will treat people differently not necessarily based on their value, but based on our perceptions and our prejudices. And it's interesting because, because over time, the, the Christian church has been criticized and sometimes even denounced, and in some cases, justifiably so, because of the prejudices that, that, that it, it did and still sometimes manifest in terms of whether it's class or race or, or financial status or even sex, sex distinctions. And so we as Jesus followers must learn to ignore all differences of class, social station, race, wealth, sex, and recognize all by the image that they bear and the readiness of their heart. You see, there's two things at play here that we need to recognize as Jesus followers is that as we encounter people, one, every single person we encounter, regardless of the state of deception that they're in, that they are created in the image of God. And it is so easy for us to say, yes, I agree that every person is created in God's image. But what's hard is for me to follow that through in the presence of a person who is doing everything they can to prove otherwise. And so every single person we encounter is, is created and, and designed in the image of God. But then there's an additional piece into how we, we, we relate and interact with those people is that is where is their heart, their readiness of heart. Because there are some people who, who you even begin, you even say, can I pray for you? They are absolutely not okay with you praying for them. And that's, that, that's a statement as, as to where their readiness of heart is to receive. And so not only do we see people as, as those who've been created in God's image, but, but we see people to their readiness of heart. And so Jesus here is sitting here in this context with, with uh, all of these tax collectors and sinners. And, and the reality is that, that 
moral good people wouldn't really be friend tax collectors. And so the kinds of friends that Matthew had were all of the people that were seen as the people you avoided. You don't party with those people. You don't eat with those people. And here Jesus is sitting in the midst of those people. And, and, and what he's doing is, is the Pharisees are standing there and saying, why on earth would he, he recline and eat and, and spend time with these sinners and tax collectors? Because they're not going to do that. But, but the reality is Jesus saw everyone, including the Pharisees, to the, to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes, as people who were created in God's image. And he, he interacted with them based on their readiness of heart. Because you see, Matthew, a tax collector, had a readiness of heart. He was ready to hear something because Jesus knew this about him, that he recognized that he needed something that he was missing. And unfortunately, the Pharisees at this moment in, in the story are basically looking out and saying, you know, I, we, we, don't, we don't need anything from Jesus. We're here to, to actually verify if Jesus even has a good message. They weren't looking for something from Jesus. And, and, so, and so the reality is that, that we as Jesus followers don't really have the freedom to adopt the talking points from any party or any segment of our, of, our, of our culture or society in how we see or define people. Jesus has already defined people with his broken body and shed blood. And so we cannot just say what we believe. We live what we say in the same way that Jesus did. Because you see, what, what we see here in, in the, the distinction between Jesus and the Pharisees is that the Pharisees made sure that they, they verbalized where they stood. But, but Jesus not only verbalized where he stood, but he lived out where he stood. The Pharisees continue to, to create more distance between the, the message of God and people, yet Jesus closed the gap and brought the message of God to people near. You see, Jesus communicates with his life and his death that people are what matter most of all. People matter to God. Every person matters. He does this without only making statements, but, but by living consistently to that end, even when it cost him even when it cost him. And so Jesus' life was consistent with his mission. He didn't just preach, but he acted according to a certain set of values. And he was consistent with those values. You see, the Pharisees, they communicated with their lives that people knowing what they were about was most important to them. Think about the, the behavior of the Pharisees and the behavior of Jesus. Jesus was accused of all kinds of things throughout his ministry. He was accused of all kinds of things. And in fact, this, this week, um, one of the things we're, we're, we're doing um, is, is, is kind of as we uh, walk through Mark, um, there's a couple passages that we're not going to preach through on Sunday, but we'll have kind of a midweek uh, kind of devotional on that passage. And the passage after what I preach today is this coming week. So, so you'll, you'll, I want you to watch for this week. Um, the next passage, and it's a passage about the crowds following Jesus and how Jesus wanted himself to be defined. And so I'd encourage you, when you get that this week, make sure you watch that and, and, and just kind of think about what, what, what Jesus is saying to you through that. But, but here's the thing. The Pharisees were so concerned about people knowing what they believed, not experiencing the effects of what they believed, 
but just simply knowing that they were in the right position, the right moral and historical position. They were about defining themselves, which was most important, rather than rescuing others. Their lives were inconsistent with what they claimed because they claimed that God is the king, yet they lived as if they were kings rather than God was king. And there's an interesting thing that, that's been kind of a common term over the last few years, and it's become even more and more, 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 and more mentioned in things like that, is this idea of virtue signaling. Um, and and here's, here's a couple definitions of it. Cambridge Dictionary defines virtue signaling this way, an attempt to show other people that you are a good person, for example, by expressing opinions that will be acceptable to them, especially on social media. I love the Urban Dictionary's definition for, uh, for virtue signaling. It says, it says uh, to take a conspicuous but essentially useless action ostensibly to support a good cause, but actually to show off how much more moral you are than everyone else. That is exactly what the Pharisees were doing, isn't it? They took positions to show how much better they were than everyone else. That's exactly what you see in the life of the Pharisees throughout the ministry of Jesus. They constantly set situations up that, that they could be compared with others to show how much better they were. And we'll see this even play out in today's text. The Pharisees were kind of the, like the OGs of virtue signaling. That's what they were. And, and so here what Jesus does at, at Matthew's house, with, surrounded by all of these people, Jesus basically says, I'm here because people matter. And I'm not concerned about being seen as better than other people because I know who I am. And Jesus said, these people need me. So I am like a doctor attending people who are sick. All you need to do is show up. And, and so here Jesus, Jesus presents that. And so, and so here we, we begin this whole thing with Pharisees saying, hey, why does Jesus, you know, eat with sinners? That doesn't seem to be the thing that someone who, who really is, is moral and spiritual would do. And so we see, that, we see this go on in, 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 in chapter 2, starting in verse 18. In verse 18, we see Jesus. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So John the Baptist and, and, and his disciples and, and the Pharisees and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples not fast? And this was kind of a, that set-up question from the Pharisees to say, Hey, look at, again, Jesus, let's look at this. Jesus eats with sinners. We don't. Who are you going to trust? People who have, have a high moral standard or one who engages in this kind of thing. And then they say, you know, even John's disciples and the Pharisees, they, they fast. Why, why don't Jesus' disciples fast? And it's interesting because, because they ask this question about fasting. And in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament Torah, there was one required fast per year. And that was the Day of Atonement, today known as Yom Kippur. And then eventually, as, as, as the nation grew, there were four annual fasts added later. But really, to obey the law, there was one day a year that you were required to fast to meet the qualifications of the law. Yet the Pharisees, to show how zealous and righteous they are, to show how much more moral they are than everyone else, 
they, they brought it to a place where they fasted two times a week and demanded that if you were really righteous, you would fast twice a week. And it drew attention to themselves. That's why later in Jesus' ministry, he talks about when you fast, don't, don't look hungry and weak and sad and, 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 and clean yourself up and be normal because all you're doing is you're letting it, you're, you're essentially, Jesus says, you're virtue signaling, saying, oh, look at me, I'm fasting. Look at how moral and righteous that I am. And so Jesus didn't dismiss fasting but he reinforced that it has a proper time and place and position. And here's how he responds to the, to the Pharisees questioning again. In verse 19, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, and then they will fast in that day. And basically what he says is he says, Look, the whole point of fasting is, is seeking God and putting yourself in a position where, where you are chasing after God and you're setting other things aside. And he says, while if you're at a wedding feast, you, you, you would recognize that the bridegroom is there in your midst. And, and, he says, and he says, that would be foolish not to do that. Then he goes on and he says, he says these two, he gives these two illustrations. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and, the, and, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus uses these two illustrations, these two examples that were common, because when he talks about the, the new fabric and the old fabric, he talks about fabric that, that has already been shrunk, and fabric that hasn't been. And so if you patch a, a, a piece of, of a, a garment with new fabric that hasn't been shrunk, when eventually it, it, it actually will do more damage to that garment than good. He says that they don't work together. They can't coexist. And, and then he talks about old wine or new wine into old wineskins and the idea uh, of those old wineskins, they can't contain it because they're not compatible with that. They'll break, they'll burst, they'll leak. And basically what Jesus is saying is that my kingdom message is incompatible with your existing form of religion and society. That, that what I've come to preach is the same thing that God set up long ago, except the problem is, is that you have veered off that track. The fact that you are wondering why I am engaging sinners tells me that you don't understand the message of the kingdom. The fact that you are wondering why my disciples aren't fasting tells me that you don't understand who I am. And, and, and so Jesus says, says in, this, in this response to the Pharisees, he says, look, what you are pursuing is incompatible with the kingdom, and you've got to repent, and you've got to turn from that and trust me. So not only do they ask about the fasting, but, but then they, they move on. And, and, and again, it's just kind of from one situation to another. In verse 23, it says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so again, they, they, they ask the question. And, and they're asking about work in the Sabbath. 
And in the Sabbath, God gave mankind the Sabbath to restore human beings, both their rest and their refocus on God's ownership of all things. That's what the Sabbath is for. It is to, for us to stop, pause, rest, because God values that, and for us to refocus our attention on God who owns all things. And, and, and so it was created to be a joy. It was created to be something that rejuvenated not only our bodies, but our spiritual eyes and our hearts and our minds. Yet the Pharisees turned it into a burden to bear, and it was a hierarchy of virtue rather than rest and refocus. Because the Pharisees said, no, 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 you, you need to accomplish all of these things and all of these rules, and you need to be under the burden of these rules that they added. Yet Jesus looks and he responds to them as the Pharisees say, now why are your disciples working on the Sabbath? And they defined that by grabbing some grain as they were walking through a field and feeding themselves because they were hungry. Here's how Jesus responds. He says, and he said to them in verse 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus responds by quoting 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David goes in because he's hungry and he's on the run from Saul, and he takes this, this holy bread from the temple, from, from, and, and he eats it, and he shares it with his men. And there's really no response from the Pharisees because they can't question David, the greatest king in Israel's history. They can't question what he did, and so there's no response from them. And so Jesus responds by saying, even the Son of Man is even Lord over the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is doing, he is systematically peeling away the hollow platitudes that adorn the Pharisees, leaving them just with what's inside. And what's inside are insecure individuals who are afraid that they're going to lose their power and authority in the kingdom that, in which they live. Yet Jesus says that has to happen in order for you to receive my kingdom. And so, and so not only do they, they question, why is Jesus interacting with sinners? Why are Jesus, Jesus' followers not taking kind of that high, moral, righteous road of fasting twice a week? And not only are they asking, uh, why, is Jesus, why is Jesus' followers breaking, breaking the Sabbath by working on it? Because all of those things were signals that the Pharisees used to show how righteous they are and how deserving of the authority they had were and why people should listen to them because they were such good people. And so then, and then we see this kind of downward spiral. Look at, look at what it says in the next verse. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Notice this is different. There's a different thing that Mark describes. He says that, that Jesus entered the synagogue, 
And the Pharisees were watching him to see what he would do. It says to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And so think about the, 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 the state of mind, the, the, the mindset where the Pharisees are at this point. They begin with this questioning. They say, well, why does Jesus ask with, uh, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or why do John and, and the Pharisee disciples fast and not yours? Why are you doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? No more questions because the Pharisees are done asking questions. They've, they've, they've risen to the point of being hostile, and, and now they're, they're engaged in this conspiracy because here's what they're doing. They are now watching Jesus, not to find out what he's all about, but they're watching him so that they might accuse him. Think about that. The, the, the times that, that, that we see in our society where, where people are being watched, not to learn from them or to understand them, but they're being watched so that we can get some dirt on them. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, we're going to watch Jesus because we want to get some dirt on him so we can accuse him and go after him. And, and you see, it says that their hearts were being hardened against the message of the kingdom. And, 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 and we'll read in a second, they were so angry with Jesus. They were so threatened in their kingdom and their concept of what God represented that, that they went out and allied themselves with the Herodians. It says immediately after they saw what Jesus did, it says that they went out to the Herodians and conspired how they might kill Jesus. Now remember for a second, the Herodians were, were led, basically their, their, their front man was Herod Antipas, who was who was the, the leader, who was, who was kind of reigning. He was put on into to, to authority and leadership by Rome, and he was kind of heading up, heading up Jerusalem. And, and he wasn't respected ever by the religious leaders because he was a sellout. He was a traitor. In fact, later in, in Mark chapter 6, we see that Herod Antipas is the one who executes John the Baptist. This is the guy, this is the group of people that the Pharisees are aligning themselves with because they so despise the message of Jesus. Look, look, look what it says. So they were watching to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Let me tell you what Jesus did right there. Notice what Jesus did, because I think it's easy to miss this. Jesus says to them, he calls the man to come into the middle of, of the room. He wants people to see this. And he says, come here. And then he says, is it lawful to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? You see, Jesus knew what was going on in the Pharisees' hearts and their minds. And essentially, it's like Jesus just said this to them. You're concerned about the Sabbath? Whose Sabbath are you concerned about, yours or mine? I want to do good to this man while you are plotting to harm me. That's why he says, what, what, what's, 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 what's more appropriate to do on the Sabbath? To do good or harm? 
Because right now, I'm, I'm choosing to do good to this man who has a withered hand, yet you are plotting to harm me. In this moment, on the Sabbath, which activity seems to reflect the, 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 the spirit of the Sabbath better? And then he goes on, and, and he basically says, it's like he's saying, I want to save this man and heal him, but you're thinking how you can kill me. Now tell me, which one is more in line with the Sabbath? Which actually looks like the Sabbath and which one doesn't? It's actually an easy question that anyone could answer, but it's so interesting because when he says this, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or kill? It says, but they were silent. They realized that Jesus knew what was in their hearts and they couldn't say anything. And it says in verse 5, and he looked, Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Notice that Jesus' anger is not because he hates the Pharisees, it's because he's grieved at the, at the, at the state of their heart. I think one of the things that we need to grab from Jesus here is recognize and remember that when we are angered by the sinfulness and the deception and the evil of, that the people around us do, we need to remember that that anger that comes must come from a place of grief because we recognize that those image bearers have hard hearts and they are in the process of, of rejecting the good that God has for them. And so notice again what it says, and he looked around with them in anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts and said to them, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Isn't that interesting that their response to a miraculous healing of a man who was in pain and struggling was to go out and find a way to destroy Jesus? You see, Jesus didn't fall in line with the Pharisees' standards of virtue and morality and righteousness. And because he didn't, to protect their kingdom, their reputation, and their way of life, they saw no other way but to partner with the Herodians and to destroy Jesus. You see, the life of Jesus, the life of a Jesus follower will clearly communicate that people are what matter most. You see, the Pharisees were so comfortable in their kingdoms, they couldn't let go of their kingdom, what they were used to, what they enjoyed, to allow God's kingdom to come to pass. And the problem with, with this, this thing that, that we as Jesus followers, we, our lives will clearly communicate that people are what matter most. The problem is that often we, we signal that we value all people but the inconsistency of our words and actions communicate differently. We say that we value everyone and everyone is, is, is loved by God. Some are redeemed because of their, the, the place that their hearts are in and some are not redeemed, but we need to continue to pursue them. And we, we say those things, 
But oftentimes the way we talk and the way we act communicate something different. And, and probably one of the reasons we often do this is because we have certain causes that we're trying to advance. And we see this in the world around us. Most of the revolutionaries and politicians of today are trying to attack other groups in order to uphold their own ideals. There's this worldly process that, 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 that we, in order to defend our own ways, we feel it necessary to destroy the other groups that don't uphold our ideals in order to keep our way of life. But Jesus didn't do that. Notice that he never just let them have it. I mean, there's times that he spoke sternly and truthfully. He always spoke truthfully. But there was times that he spoke sternly to people, but it came from a love and a grief and a compassion because he saw the state of those people's hearts. He was grieved and hurt. He was never vulgar or outrageous. He never did things merely for the sake of being different. He didn't try to call attention to himself by bizarre actions or, or, or by walking around with a cross on his back or by beating himself in public or wearing strange clothes or looking m- remarkably different than anyone else. And yet neither was he ever fearful or compromising. Jesus was completely surrendered and trusting of his heavenly Father and saw people as they really are image bearers all at different places of deception and restoration. What if we thought about people that way? What if we looked at people and said, I see Mike, he is in this place, he's in this process of restoration right now. Or I look and see this person and say, man, this person, they're in this place, we're in this process of deception right now. What on earth can I do to try and help them see that they are in a place of deception? What if we saw people at different places of deception and restoration and that God wants relationship with all of those people? And and, and so here Jesus, all the rules and the traditions and the regulations and the prejudices and the excess of zeal and self-righteousness didn't stand in the way of him seeking and saving the lost. Jesus didn't just say to the people that he came to seek and save the lost, but he actually did it. And he made sure he was in places where those lost people were. You see, I I believe that today we have an incredible opportunity to do exactly what Jesus did. I think no matter what your thoughts about life and the the way of life you have. It probably doesn't matter who you are. Everyone's way of life is threatened today, isn't it? I mean, I I think that every single person, to some degree, their way of life is threatened. And and, and I guess the question is, is is how are we going to respond in that moment? As Jesus followers, what are we going to do? When I was growing up, when I was little, we lived in Milford, Michigan, Milford, Michigan is, is, a, is a kind of a far further suburb of, of, of the metro Detroit area. And uh, where we lived, we would come out of our neighborhood and we'd, anytime we went anywhere really, we went by this, this large area of land that was all either these, these trees, these kind of trees that, that blocked your view from this area, these giant fences, and it was the General Motors Proving Grounds. And uh, so we would pass by the entrance to that and there was this big gate 
and uh, there was security there, and you could never, and I always, and every so often, I would get a glimpse through the trees or through, through the fence. You know, if you're driving by a fence, you know, fast, you can kind of see through it, and, and I would see cars that General Motors hadn't yet released, and they, they take them to the General Motors Proving Grounds in, Mich- in, in Milford, Michigan, and they would test around. They had a huge test track and all of this, these, these, these cool these cool tracks and all these things, and they would go and test the cars to make sure that the cars were what they claimed they were. It was the proving grounds for GM cars in Milford, Michigan. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that that the context in which we live today is our proving grounds. What we claim to believe about God and his sovereignty and about people and their need for Jesus, what we claim to believe, this is that time that we are proving that we really believe those things. This is our proving grounds. All of the things that that I've claimed over my lifetime, the ways I've claimed I've grown, the messages that I've talked about, humility and surrender to Jesus, and commitment to, to his righteousness and his truth. This is, this is, this, I'm on the test track. This is our proving grounds. And you see, Jesus kind of threw that, that challenge out to the Pharisees, and they failed. They weren't what they claimed to be. And so as we, as we continue to gather and as we continue to, to navigate this, my question for you this morning is this. Are you being proved during this time? Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, he says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Are we being approved during this time? Are the people who follow Jesus being approved? Are we proving what we claim to believe? You see, here's the reality. You matter to God more than anything else. And he proved that by sacrificing his son. And he wants to approve you as you follow him. And and right now is an awesome time to be, be proving that. But I want you to know this this morning. Wherever you are, whether you're online or here in person, you matter to God. He loves you whether you've responded to him or not. His desire is that you respond to him. And so we have... We're going to have the prayer team over here on this side. And if this morning you need to respond to Jesus for salvation because you've realized that you are like those in, at Matthew's house, that you need Jesus to heal you, to, 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 to forgive your sins and to be a part of your life, then I would encourage you as, as I close in prayer to go over and talk with those people. If you're here this morning because you matter to God and you're just in a place of, of hurt and struggle, then I would encourage you to go over and receive prayer and, let's, and share that with someone and let them pray for you.
I encourage you this week, on Tuesday morning right here, we gather together at 6.30 to pray, to cry out to God and to surrender ourselves again, to repent and, and believe that God is on his throne and that he is working and that he continues to come through in, in enlarging his kingdom, even though sometimes we can't see it. So I'd encourage you to join us from 6.30 in the morning to 7.30 on Tuesdays. This morning, what we've been presented in, 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 in the word is this. Where are you? Are you one who recognizes you are in need of God's continual grace and growth in your life? Or are you at a place where you are allying yourselves with those who would reject God's kingdom? Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and I thank you so much for your love, for the way that you continue to work in us. God, the way that you, communica you communicate so clearly what you want us to be and who you want us to be and how you want us to be. Father, I pray for those this morning who don't know you, those whose hearts are being softened, that God, you would move in their heart and their mind and God, that they would come to you for salvation. Father, I pray for those of us who are on the track right now, going round and round. God, that we would be people who are approved by you. God, that during this time that, that, that I would be proving that I truly believe what I claim to believe, that fear does not characterize my life, but humility and surrender and unapologetic commitment to the words of Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that you would help us to be who you say that we are. And God, that there would be a great harvest regardless of the situations or the circumstances around us for your kingdom's sake and your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. 